We're in the fifth week of our series uh, called The Table of Undeserving Friends. Uh, and since we want to be a community that welcomes others as Christ has welcomed us, uh, we're pulling up a chair to God's table, so to speak. Because in the scriptures, uh, the kingdom of God is best described with the metaphor as a, a great banquet feast. And so we're trying to lock eyes with the mixture of guests that will occupy this feast. Uh, and we get pictures of these people throughout the scriptures. And so we've been trying to listen to their stories well. All in hopes that we might learn how gracious D Jesus is when he welcomes people into his kingdom. And how he makes us into a community that welcomes others in the same way. But as we listen to any of these stories from Jesus' guests. Uh, we will see that hospitality is always messy on this side of eternity. We always fall short. We, we'll offend. We'll build up walls. We'll push people out. Uh, we will fall short of welcoming others as Christ has welcomed us. And while at times we might succeed in, in being hospitable like Christ, many times we're simply going to fail. And sometimes we get caught up in the middle of it all. We get caught up in the drama of, of hurting people we love and seeing people clash and fight and, and failing to extend kindness and graciousness to one another. And this is where Abigail helps us out. Abigail is a remarkable woman in the Old Testament. She actually has the longest speech of any woman in the Old Testament. And, and, and she's just stunning, in my opinion. In 1 Samuel 25, we learn that she got up, caught up in the deliberate failure and insult that her husband uh, delivered to David, to King David. And then she also found herself at risk because of David's extreme overreaction uh, to Nabal's insult. And yet it's in this tense and in, in this moment of uh, hospitality falling apart that Abigail shines brightest. It's stunning. And she has a lot to teach us about messy hospitality. And so this morning, uh, we're going to listen to Abigail as she teaches us what we need most in the messy hospitality we face in our broken world, in our broken relationships, in ourselves, and even in our own community. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 25. We'll read the entire passage again and then get going. Or just verse 1. David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Mon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Uh, the stage, it's, it's set with three characters. We get uh, Nabal, Abigail, and David. And, and while these verses are just setting the stage, um, it's being set for a conflict that unfolds. And we're just going to look at each person's role in this conflict one by one. And since uh, Nabal's introduced first, we'll start with Nabal. Uh, you want to note that before we're given Nabal's name, we're told about his business, we're told about his wealth. He was very rich. His business was thriving. Uh, and he's introduced this way for a reason. Nabal is a man defined by his possessions. And verse 3 says he was harsh and badly behaved. Or the NIV puts it he was surly and mean uh, like a pirate. Or the RSV, uh, curlish and ill-behaved. 
however you want to put it, whatever creative words you want to use to translate this. Uh, the point is that Nabal lived by his namesake. Nabal means fool. The man was a fool, and he personifies the fool in uh, Proverbs, for example, in the wisdom literature of, of Israel. The, Nabal just per, per, personifies, you know, someone who has turned a blind eye to God. Who, who says there is no God and lives by his own wisdom and who does what is right in his own estimation. The fool who refuses good counsel and lives to their own demise. This is Nabal. Now, in the history of human civilization, and I, I've done a, a wide extent of reading on this, uh, spanning across all times and ages, all cultures and spaces, this is bar none the greatest example of marrying up ever. And we're told, uh, in vast contrast to Nabal's character, his wife Abigail, she's discerning and beautiful. And she, she really does personify uh, the wise woman in Proverbs 31. She's a woman of remarkable initiative and tact. Uh, she's independent, and yet she honors her husband, even her foolish husband. And so now we get to look at David. So first one, it, it tells us that David, he's been camping out in Paran near where Nabal and Abigail live. And it's not that David just got a bunch of bros together and was like, hey, let's, let's go camping. Uh, you got to remember, in this season of David's life, uh, King Saul wants him dead. King Saul has exiled him and has been hunting after him. He wants David gone because he knows that the Lord has anointed David to be the next king. And so David, while in exile, uh, has this a group of misfits gather around him, and this is his crew in the wilderness. And this is a difficult season in David's life. I think sometimes we talk about the wilderness season very lightly, but this is a time of exile and, and difficulty for David. His life is constantly being pursued. He can't stay in one place too long, and so he has to learn over and over again that the Lord is his strength and refuge and rock in times of uncertainty and danger and risk. And so he's living this nomadic lifestyle, and he depends on extending hospitality to the people he comes in touch with in hopes that they'll show him hospitality as well. He depends upon the welcoming generosity of others if he's going to survive in the wilderness. So with this in mind, let's read in verse 4. Uh, David uh, heard in the wilderness, Nabal was shearing, shearing a sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. and They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. David, he hears Nabal's shearing a sheep. In other words, Nabal is in a feasting time. There's a festival about to happen, and he's getting ready to reap the rewards of his prophets. Uh, there's going to be abundance. There's going to be an overabundance. And so David, he sends messengers of peace, very well-timed. And they report to Nabal that David, he's shown Nabal's shepherds hospitality in the wilderness. You know, they protected Nabal's people as if they were their own. And in turn, David says, so show us some favor. Share some of your abundance with us. Treat me like a son, uh, as I've cared for your people well. Uh, in, in other words, David's asking Nabal to reciprocate the hospitality. I've cared for you, please care for me. We're extending peace to you, please extend peace to us. Seems fair. 
Uh, Nabal responds, verse 9 through 11, when David's young men came. They said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? This is a multi-layered insult to David. This is, dare I say, the seven-layered dip of insults. First, Nabal, he says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Who is David? Everybody in the region knows who David is. David was in, uh, when David was in Saul's service and in Saul's good graces, uh, people throughout the land would say, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. It was David's growing fame and favor with the people uh, that began to gnaw away at Saul. There's no asking, who is David? You know who David is. Uh, for our generation, it'd, like, it'd be like saying, uh, who's Obama? Who's Harper? Who's Queen Bee? You know, uh, essentially, Nabal is, if you didn't know, Julia didn't know, that's Beyonce, uh, <laughs> Sasha Fierce. Uh, and essentially, though, rare form. Uh, essentially, Nabal is saying, David is of no significance to me. Then Nabal adds another level to the insult. He says, there's many servants breaking away from their masters these days. Essentially, he's saying, David, you've broken away from Saul because you're rebellious. I can't trust you. And this is just a cut at David. Because again, people would know that he had been exiled. Then Nabal adds another layer of arrogance. Shall I take my bread and my water, my meat, that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I do not know where they're from? You got to notice how many I's and my's are in that sentence. The world to Nabal revolves around him. Everything is his. Who matters and doesn't is determined by him. And he thinks uh, he can determine these things because of his wealth. He doesn't care if someone helped him because he's perfectly capable of helping himself. In his opinion, uh, why should he help David? Who's David? Nobody. He doesn't need his help. We have to recognize this as narcissistic individualism. In other words, Nabal, he's, he's full of himself. And this is just an expression of his foolishness. And as a result, he throws David's hospitality back in David's face. And so the, the insult is delivered on Nabal's behalf to David. And then David responds. Uh, it, we pick that up in verses 12 through 13. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strapped on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David often was strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. This is very out of ordinary for David. Um, this is a surprising overreaction. David is about to slaughter Nabal. Just a chapter before, in chapter uh, 24, we see David at his best. Saul, as I've said, has been hunting David and, and he's finally narrowed David down to a region. And, and while honing in on David, nature calls. And so Saul, he needs to relieve himself, and so he heads into a cave. Uh, so don't ever accuse the scriptures of not being real. Anyway, so Saul, he doesn't realize, though, 
that David and his men were hiding in this cave. And so David's men come to him and say, David, this is your chance. Yahweh has delivered Saul into your hands. Take his life. And so David sneaks up on Saul and cuts off a corner of his garment. But then David's heart strikes him. He's done wrong. He's reached out against God's anointed. And so he leaves the safety of the cave and falls down before Saul and tells him everything that has happened, which must have just been horrifying to Saul because no one wants to be watched doing that, let alone to have their life risked while doing that. But what Saul says in verse 24, verse 7 is very important. He says to David, you are more righteous than I. You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. When everything was on the line, when David could have ended his exile, when David could have uh, assured his um, ascension to the throne, he stopped. He didn't repay Saul's evil with evil. He doesn't retaliate. He showed him goodness. He decided to step back and allow God to work out the salvation, allow God to work out his ascension to the throne. How dare he lift his hand against God's anointed king, Saul, there. It's no mistake that that David's interaction with Nabal comes immediately after this shining moment in his life. Look at what he says in verses uh, 25, uh, or cha- sorry, chapter 25, verses 21 through 22. Surely in vain I have guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more so if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. One chapter before, David refuses to return evil for evil. He returned good for evil, but now he throws that posture away. Nabal's returned him evil for good, so David will return that favor, evil for evil. David's motivations are getting checked here. We can almost hear God asking him, You can show goodness to the king, but not to the fool. David, did you only care for Nabal's shepherds because it would benefit you? That's not hospitality. That's leveraging. That's manipulation. In his anger, having been insulted, his his pride wounded, David, he's about to throw everything away. He's about to take it into his hands, and he's going to play on Nabal's terms rather than God's. We get this. When people don't respond the way that we want them to respond, when they they don't act the way we think they should act, and when anger wells up inside of us, what do we do? We fight back. We say the nasty comment instead of holding back. We fire off the thoughtless email. We fight back on their terms. In a childlike way, we feel justified. I'm only meeting them on their terms, which is the grown-up way of saying he started it. What we see in this passage so far is that in the messiness that is hospitality here and now, people fall short. They screw it up. If he were wise and righteous, Nabal should have returned the hospitality. But David shouldn't have attempted to leverage his kindness to gain uh, from Nabal. See, the human heart in this chapter is so very messy, and therefore hospitality is messy. Foolishness can incite foolishness. Insult can invite insult. And we can never really be sure of our motives. But we can be certain that our own shortcomings and selfishness and hyper-individualistic perspective on life will get in the way of true kindness and welcoming of others. 
Nabal's foolishness, insult, his insults, his inhospitality towards David has put his life in jeopardy. But David's willingness uh, to return the favor jeopardizes his calling, first to follow God, and, and second, his calling to the throne. Then we get Abigail. Then there's Abigail. Everything Abigail does in this chapter is, a, is an example of her beauty and her discretion on display. Word gets to her about what Nabal has done, about his foolishness, and she takes action right away. She doesn't pause. She gathers up a generous amount of resources, food, wine, and personally heads to David. But she doesn't tell Nabal. And when Abigail gets to David, what's the first thing she does? Look at verse uh, 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet. Got to remember, David's name has been insulted. His status and his worth have been challenged. And so Abigail honors him. She pays the respect that he deserves, and she humbles herself before him, and she lifts David up. And then she speaks, and her, and her speech is just incredible. Verses 24 through 31, like I said, is the, the longest recorded speech by any woman in the Old Testament. And so much could be said about it. Abigail, she's humble. She takes Ownership of Nabal's faults, she says, on me alone be the guilt. She asks for forgiveness for his folly and his foolishness. She reminds David of what God has done in and through him and what God intends to accomplish through him. And she believes in it. But what's her main point to David in this speech? What's her main point? What does she hope to stop David from doing? Look at verse 26. Saving with your own hand. Verse 31, working salvation for himself. Indeed, this is what David affirms in verses 32 through 33. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who've kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Abigail intervenes for David. He's about to take matters that belong to God into his own hands. Over a fool, David is about to throw it all away. And because Abigail intervenes for him, because she reminds him to let God fight his battles, David stops. David stops, and he blesses God. He blesses her. He blesses her discretion. And he doesn't work salvation with his own hands. David, he relearns an important lesson. God fights his battles for him. God shows up when he's insulted. God takes care of him. And Nabal's foolishness is returned upon his own head. Verse 38, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. God is the judge here, not David. God is the one who makes the call and distributes justice. And when David takes Abigail to be his wife, uh, God cares for Abigail too, and he saves her from a wild, foolish man, and he honors her even to the point of giving her a queen's crown. Ladies, uh, this could be a lesson on how to trade in a possibly foolish husband for a better upgrade, but uh, it's not the point here. The point 
is that David's faithfulness matters. Period. Whether David is dealing with God's anointed or whether he's dealing with a fool, he's to be faithful to God's ways. But in his anger and being insulted, his anger over seeing his hospitality slighted, uh, David almost lost sight of this. And if it wasn't for Abigail intervening, it could have been game over for David's calling to the throne. Through Abigail, God teaches David that he needs intervention. Left to his own devices, David will throw it all away over a fool's insult. He'll be just as much of a fool. David needs intervention. So do we. So do we. All too often, we can be like Nabal. We can live like fools without even realizing it. Our our wealth or our self-centeredness can cause us to become uh, unwelcoming people. No need to share what we have. No need to welcome other people in. Totally self-sufficient. Or so we think. But in doing so, we become functional atheists. You You may profess you believe in God, but you don't live as if everything depends on God or that everything God has given you is for the sake of blessing others as well. And there's going to be times where, like Nabal, we refuse to have anything to do with the people God is working in and through. Instead, we resist them and we oppose them and we even insult them because our pride convinces us that we have no need for them. And it blinds us to what could happen if we welcome the people that God is already working in into our lives. All too often, though, we can be like David. No matter who you're dealing with, fools or kings, bosses or strangers, in-laws or best friends, how's your faithfulness holding up? Is your kindness and your willingness to welcome other people into your life contingent upon who they are? Is it only to the people who already like you, the people you already love? Or when someone insults you or fails to reciprocate the kindness you've shown them, how's your faithfulness then? How's it when someone slights you or insults you or you find out someone's been gossiping about you? What happens then? Stop praying for our enemies. We don't pray for those who insult us. We don't respond with kindness. Instead, we scheme about how to respond. Evil for evil. Insult for insult. Slight for slight. Glare for glare. We gossip. We exclude. We fail to show hospitality to people we deem fools or the inhospitable uh, or to people we just don't like because we don't think they deserve it. And so like David, we begin to only show hospitality when we think it will somehow benefit us. That's what's happening here in this experience with Nabal. And this passage in Samuel, it anchors us in the way things are. On this side of eternity, in the here and now, hospitality, it's messy. We mess it up. We fail to live out the radically welcoming message of Jesus time and time again. And whether we tend towards the foolishness of Nabal saying, there is no God. I don't need his help. I can do as I please. Or the self-righteousness of David saying, there is a God, but I don't need his help. I have to work out salvation for myself. We need an intervention. Whether we're irreligious or religious, we need intervention. God knows this. He knows we need an intervention. 
We need someone to intervene to keep us from our own foolishness. Someone to intervene when we take matters into our own hands. We need someone who reminds us of our call, who reminds us of who God is, who helps us see the bigger picture, who can uh, be righteous when we forget how. That's what the Lord's doing with Abigail. He sent her to David to save him from himself. To take, and she took the, the, the wrong upon herself. She interceded for her husband. Uh, she reminds David of his call. She reminds David of the bigger picture. And her intervention points him towards God. And it, re- it requires David to stop and trust God's action. And God sent someone to intervene for us. too. God sent Jesus to intervene for us. He intervenes for both the the irreligious or the religious and says there's a better way. It's not about what you do or don't do, but about what I have done for you and how I have intervened for you. And Jesus, he humbly took our sins upon himself on the cross. And he intervenes when we're on a path towards destruction. And he stands in the way and indeed suffers for us so that we can live. And through his intervening work, we're forgiven. We're given abundant life. And, and he helps us see who God really is and how far God is willing to go to keep us from our own foolishness or to keep us from our own anger, to keep us from the things that would tear us apart and separate us from God and fracture relationships around us. And he continues to intervene in our lives through his spirit. We just say, Jesus, I need you to intervene. I need you to work salvation in me. I can't do it. And by his spirit, moment by moment, he'll give us discretion. He'll give us wisdom. He'll give us direction. And he'll show us that by his spirit, we really can live like us. We really can live with a spirit of self-control and love. That we really can welcome others as Christ has welcomed us. But we can't even begin to live like that without Christ's grace and intervening work in our lives. So the challenge is whether we're caught up in our foolishness or whether we're caught up in our self-righteous anger is to stop. Let Christ intervene. And the beauty of it, the beauty of it, is that it's always available. Every moment, every situation, and every hurt, and every struggle, we can find Christ there, extending his welcome, extending his grace, willing to meet us in the messiness that can be hospitality, Show us a better way forward. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you to intervene in our lives. All too often we're blindsided by our own shortcomings. Or we're blind to them altogether. All too often we try to 
take matters of salvation into our own hands, whether it's in relationships or whether it is even in being set right with you, Lord. We think that there's something we can do to better a situation or something we can do to be saved. But Lord, all things depend upon you. And so we ask that you'd intervene in our community's life, that you would meet us, that you would show us a better way forward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.